0: Would you turn with me this morning as we first reveal God's glory in the reading of his word from Exodus 19 and we'll begin in verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, "'Go to the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, "'Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain nor touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow.' Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. Then Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near the Lord sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and sanctify it. Then the Lord said to him, Away, get down, and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would use my feeble and sinful lips to open this, your word, to your people. Let it pierce their hearts and drive them closer to you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. William Gurnall was a 17th-century English Christian and an author of Christian in His Complete Armor, and I think that he had it right when he stated, "I believe that we fear men so much because we fear God so little." And you know, I think he is right. Oftentimes, we are weak and we fear men and circumstances, and a whole host of other minutiae, and things that we cannot control. But you know what, it's not on that side of the equation that I want to focus on today, this fear of men, although we'll talk about it. What I want to dwell on and talk about today is this lack of fear towards God. Now fear is an interesting word, and it it encompasses such a large spectrum and people have lots of ideas what fear means and what they've been taught in the past. So, it will be necessary for us to look at the Word, I believe, as it's unfolded around the cross today. That's going to be kind of the center point of our focus. But first, I want to look at the Word itself. How are the word, How is the Word used in the Bible? Now, in the Old Testament, there are three words commonly used to describe fear. Yare, Yira, and mora. Now in the New Testament we have just one word that's normally used for fear, phobos. Probably know what that is. We've brought that over into our English as a suffix which we use to describe a whole host of modern fears, the word phobia. Now by the way, if you're, you know, a little anxious, you're sweating, maybe a little worried as you sit here in your chair right now, don't worry because you're only one of the many who suffer from homilophobia. Or the fear of sermons. (laughs) It's just unfortunate today that there's some churches that have that entire fear in them. And I wish it wasn't so, but that's kind of what we're talking about today. Now, in these words, that little bit of humor aside, there's usually two main uh, meanings that they're used when they're grouped together. Now, the first of them, and the word fear is used in 385 verses, so quite a few, the first grouping of meaning is that of common mortal fear. Usually we describe it as being terrified, scared, or afraid. We saw a little bit of that in this passage with Moses and the people, how scared and afraid that they were. And on your diagram that I gave you, that's on the left side above the F and the E. I, I'm going to use, call that common mortal fear or mortal fear throughout the sermon. Now the second grouping is that of reverence, deference, or veneration. I've called that on the right side of the cross there, above the A and the R, that is godly fear. And that's how I'll be referring to the two meanings throughout the sermon. Now, although I seem to have separated these two meanings, I don't want you to get the impression, though, that the two cannot coexist at the same time, as if a person cannot be experienced both mortal and godly fear. We'll get into a few examples of that later on. Just know that when somebody uses, or when I use the word fear, I'll try to describe what meaning I'm attaching to it so that we're not confusing the two. But the definitions and the words and the vocabulary aside, that's all important to look at. I'm going to be real blunt here before I get into the meat of the sermon. Because I think so much of the trouble that we see when we as Christians look out into the world, and even trouble that we see in the church, I think comes about because we either have a lack of understanding or we even have a lack of consideration of this word, fear, and what it means in our lives. In fact, since we're in a, in a uh, presidential season here, it kind of reminded me, if those of you who remember Ross Perot. He used to talk about the crazy ant that was in the basement. If you remember back, his crazy ant that he thought people hid in the basement was the deficit. But for us, in both society and the church, I think we've done the same thing. We have a few crazy ants of our own. Sin, punishment, fear, judgment. We don't like to talk about these things because they make people uncomfortable. And so we kind of want to pretend that they don't exist. We want to put God and His Word in a box and just talk about the things that we want to, the things that make people feel good. But you know what? I'm not going to let us get away with that today. We're going, to, we're going to go down to the basement. We're going to grab our Aunt Fear here. We're going to take her up, dust her off a little bit, and we're going to see what she's all about. To see if we are, are we missing anything as a nation, as a church, and family and individuals. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at, are we missing anything in this thing called the fear of God. Now, on your diagram, I, like I said, I separated everything around the cross there. And before we can look at fear from the eyes of the Christian, which I think is where I'd like to spend most of my time today, I think we have to start with the natural condition of every man and his relationship to God. Where do we all start from? Now, since it's not a... Sermon dealing directly with that topic. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I will state that the clear and unanimous testimony of Scripture is that man, as a result of the first failure of our parents, we stand guilty before a perfect and a holy God. Paul testifies clearly and succinctly to this fact, where he states in Romans that oft quoted verse For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory. Gives us a great picture. The glory of God up here. And here's everybody else who has sinned. A great separation between the two. And so the testimony in the Bible and in history, we see that man from the first sin of Adam, he's aware of his sin. He's aware of his shortcomings, his schemings, his failures. And yet despite knowing that you know, nothing can escape God, Man decides to hide his failures from his creator. And Isaiah writes in verse, uh, chapter 29, verse 15, Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. They say, who sees us and who knows us? And we know the answer to that. God sees us and God knows us. But man still decides to try to hide his sin From God. In fact, he goes even one step further. He doesn't just try to hide his sin from God, he tries to erase the memory of God himself, but to no avail. Paul confronts us with the truth that what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. And that was from Romans 1, 19 and 20. And so, in that first column we have there, the F, man in his natural state is fallen. And we are confronted with these two truths from God's revelation. Man is by nature a sinner. And no matter how hard he tries to hide his sin and himself from God, and no matter how far he tries to push God away and God's existence... God's presence has been made known to them, for they will be without excuse in the judgment. But you know what? The picture is not complete on that side of the cross. Because we are not just remaining in our sins in a fallen state, that F, but we are also in an adversarial relationship with God. We are an enemy of God. Look at how the scriptures describe these people standing on that side of the cross. James 4:4 4, 4 states, "Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God." Paul says states in Romans 8:7, "The carnal mind is enmity or hatred against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be." And lastly, we have an even more familiar verse in Matthew. And he shows us that there is no middle ground in this spiritual area, in this relationship with God. There is no spiritual Switzerland that somebody thinks they can exist in as if we cannot love God, but you know what, we don't have to be His enemy. There is no middle ground between one side and the other. Matthew wrote, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one And love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. And so that was just a quick, short view, looking on that left side of the cross on your diagram, to take a look at the state and the relationship of the unsaved man. But now it's important for us to look at how fear relates to this person, You see, despite these truths that we are taught about man and his relationship to God, this this separation between the glory of God and the sinfulness of man, the Bible, and we need not go further than that, but even our own experience teaches us that man in this state and in this relationship fails to exercise proper fear. And you know, it's not the type of fear, I'm not expecting that the person who is not a child of God, would show deference or reverence to God. But I think we could say that the Bible shows they fail to even show that mortal common fear that we would expect in all relationships that we see even around us when two such persons in such a, with such a gulf between them, we expect to see some level of anxiety or fear. And even more so, knowing that we're talking the difference between Creator and creation here. I mean, think about how people are, you know, struck with anxiety and they start getting nervous when they meet a dignitary or somebody they admire, or even starstruck when they see a sports star, a politician, somebody that they have um, some great admiration for. And then compare that to the lack of fear that these same people show to the God of all creation in providence, the one who sustains them, although they try to run away from him. Compare their lack of concern to how one who was called of God described himself as he was stricken with his own humanity as he sat in the presence of God. Again from Isaiah, listen to his words. Woe is me, for I am undone, or I am destroyed For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And in comparison, look at how far the heathen darkens himself to God to the point where the psalmist declares in Psalm 36.1, concerning the transgression of the wicked, there is no fear of God in their eyes. No fear. None at all. And so, where does that leave you today? I don't know everybody's heart in the audience. If you are not a child of God, I would tell you you are consciously or not running away from His presence. But I warn you, it's a presence that you cannot get away from. And it's a presence described oftentimes in the Bible as a consuming fire. And so instead of exercising that very natural fear, the fear that prophets told us would drive men in the face of God's judgment to dive into the caves to get away from it, fear which even caused men as close to God as Moses to tremble before Mount Sinai. Fallen man instead desires to live in the open, to flaunt his perceived independence. And by doing so, I believe, he then transfers his fears that he should have from God to those things that are in the world. In a way, I look at it very similar to idolatry. In idolatry, we usually claim that it is transferring our worship from God to those things in the created realm. And I believe the unbeliever, that man who is in the fallen state and an enemy to God, transfers his fear that he should have naturally to God, he transfers it to the things around him in this world. Now, I could go through the litany of the other 567-odd phobias other than the one I mentioned earlier to show that people have transferred a lot of fear in their life. But instead, I'm going to look at what I think is the most common way every day that we see people transfer fear of God to a fear in their own life. And that's in the fear of death, which plagues so many people. The writer of Hebrews clearly recognized this fact. He wrote, those who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. That's from Hebrews 2.15. I'm going to rephrase the words just a little bit to highlight something. People have been subject their entire life to bondage by their inordinate fear of death, so much so in their effort to do this that it's all-consuming and their proper mortal fear that they should have towards God is covered. But before I go on to talk about fear from the eyes of the Christian, I think we have to take a look at what the answer is, because the Bible never tells us what the problem is without giving us the solution. And you know, the solution is found in that same verse, Hebrews 2.15. I left out a couple important words that that author wrote there. He wrote, Jesus has released those who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. You see, the answer to... Our bondage and fears, if we are unsaved, if we are not a child of God, is not that we are to cover our fear of God by our own vain efforts to redirect that fear to something else in our own life or an over-concern with our existence, so much so that we fear our death, but we must trust in Jesus Christ, who by conquering both sin and death has released all of us who were at one point held to the same bondage of fear, but have now been made children of God. And so without dwelling any anymore on that, having looked at a little bit of fear from the eyes and the position of the unbeliever, I think we're going to have to take an even more discerning look at fear from the Christian perspective. Now certainly I understand that when we see unbelievers in the world thumbing their nose at God and at his word, at his law around us, it is a little disconcerting. And we understand that, you know, they can only do this because of his forbearance and the fact that he has granted some time to pass before his judgment falls. But you know what? As much as that concerns us, that's not the primary um, focus of the message today. Because I think no matter how much we try to look at the world around us and maybe not judge ourselves to them as if we're doing so much better than they are, although we do have a tendency to do that at times, I think we really need to take a look at how we exercise godly fear in our lives to see if perhaps the church and us as professing Christians are letting down those who are around us. Because we are not doing what God has called us to do and given us the ability to do. That which He has not given those other people. So real quickly, as we look at the diagram, I had the, the F and the E on one side. Now we're going to talk a little bit about the A and the R. Now we're on the other side of the cross. Where once we were enemies, now we are reconciled to Christ and He is our Advocate. That's the A there. In 1 John 2.1, John writes, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Likewise, God has taken us from our natural fallen state and through the workings of the Holy Spirit has renewed and regenerated us. You can... Take your pick of the R you want to put there. Peter describes this renewing as the new birth, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Paul described it as not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so if you look again at that diagram, it is Christ's work on the cross, not our own, that transfers us from the place where we talked about we should exercise that mortal fear because of the gulf that separates Creator and cre- creation. And He has transferred us to the, to the other side of that cross where we are His children, where we can now exercise and should exercise godly reverential fear. And so just like the author of Hebrews said, one of the immediate benefits of being a child of God is that we are no longer in that bondage to the fear of death. That was talked about in Hebrews 2.15. Just in the same way that we are no longer in bondage, in slavery to sin, in the same way Christ has broken that bondage over fear in our lives, to where we are no longer in bondage to that mortal common fear. And we are now transferred to the place where just as we can live righteously, we can now exercise our lives in godly fear. Now, I think it's important for us just to take a quick look at how godly fear was expressed in the Bible and as it motivated our spiritual forefathers. The first person we'll look at is Noah. Uh, I picture Noah is this man sitting there. He gets this command of God and he's looking around and he knows what God told him to do and everybody is all over this guy for how crazy he is. He was probably known as Crazy Noah out there as he starts working on this ark. His family, his friends, everybody is putting him through everything they could to humiliate him and suffer as they mock everything, I'm sure, that he did. So what motivated this man? I'm sure there were many things, but Hebrews 11.7 tells us that by faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah was moved with godly fear. How about Abraham and his trials? He was told to sacrifice his only son up on Mount Moriah, according to the command of God. How did God himself describe the deepest motivation in Abraham's bosom? God says, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The last example that we'll look at just real quickly is Samuel's instructions to the Israelites. At this point, the Israelites had asked for a king so they could be just like all the other nations around them. They're finally going to get their king, and Samuel's got one little bit more of advice to give to them before they start under this new era Of King Saul's leadership. He reminds them, although they are now about to serve under a man as their king, he teaches them that they must still follow in that which he calls the good and right way. He declares to them, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. That's from Samuel 12, 1 Samuel 12, 23 and 24. And so we see that fear. Excuse me. Fear is not just a word that is so often thrown about. Something that people should be afraid of. Things we shouldn't talk about because it makes people uncomfortable. This, this godly fear, this place where Christ has bought, brought his children, is a place where our forefathers in the past were deeply motivated. And so I think that causes us to then look at our own life. What is motivating us? If godly fear is what drove these men to stand in front of um, insurmountable odds or a command that seemed so overcoming, and yet it drove them to do what they did for God, how do we see godly fear portrayed in our life? And as important as these examples of godly fear are in the past, and it does show us that godly reverence and godly awe is a motivation to do the commands of God and to perform our reasonable service to Him, no matter how important their example, it does not mean that we can rest on the spiritual laurels of the past, even those who are closer to us in time. We should not think we can continue in the same footsteps Of those before us, unless we live a life that exercises and is imbued with godly fear. Ask yourself now do you truly think you can carry on the spiritual flag of your fathers without exercising this godly, holy fear? And I think the honest answer is that we cannot do so. We must recognize, and I believe this wholeheartedly today, that there is a failure to exercise godly fear throughout both the church and in individual professing Christians, which is in part responsible for the distressing condition we see of individual sanctification. Families in the church... And then in all those other institutions that these people make up, including our nation. So that when we look around and we see and we're worried about and we're concerned about the problems of our nation, we don't even take a second to take a look at how is godly fear motivating ourselves and motivating our church. Where are we not doing what we should be doing and that is leading to all these other problems down the road. We so quickly want to jump to the symptom that we see instead of attacking the root of the problem. And I believe the root of a lot of our problems are fail, failure to exercise godly fear. Just a couple of examples. I, I was talking to Rodney before the sermon, uh, service. Probably many of you do not know, today is Evolution Sunday. Um, maybe some of you did know that, maybe you didn't. And I, I just find it unbelievable the fact that there is actually a sun, uh, Sunday, a Lord's Day out of the calendar, that church members have decided that this is the day that we need to discuss how evolution is important to us as a church. I, I, I don't see how we could stand with true godly fear and yet come to that conclusion as to what our worship should be on that week. But you know what, that's a real obvious one. That's, that's an easy uh, thing to knock down, Evolution Sunday. How about the fact that so many churches now, they're not looking to God's Word to describe how He wants us to come to Him in worship. They want to see how they can entertain people. How many people can we get in here, whether or not we bring the Word of God to them at all, is secondary. Let's just do whatever we can to make ourselves successful, to make ourselves look good. I don't believe, although I could be mistaken, I don't believe the fear of God is ever a part of that equation when we start going down the road of we're just going to do whatever works for us instead of whatever God wants us to do. That's a little bit of a harder thing to tackle than Evolution Sunday. But both of them, I believe, show a lack of godly fear in the church today. And so, we see these problems out in society, in our nation. And I think if you would go with me a little bit down that path, we do show a failure to exercise godly fear in general in the church today. So what is it that we are losing? What is it that we are giving up as Christians when we are not exercising this godly fear? And I'm going to look at just two general groupings real quickly. Now the first one is still kind of attached to the diagram having been translated from that one side of the cross to the other that mortal fear to the god being able to show godly fear on the other if we don't continue to exercise and to discipline ourselves in our lives to work in that fear of the lord then we forfeit so much of that we become weak in exercising that and i believe we tend to slide towards the other side of the cross. Not that we are ever in bondage to that fear anymore, but because we are not motivated by the fear of God, something else is taking its place. Look around. There's so many people afraid of what's going to happen when the next president gets elected. What's going to happen here? What's going to happen there? I say, what's going to happen when we stop fearing God? Well, what's going to happen when we start fearing God? And those other things start taking care of themselves, as He's promised. You know, we risk then, as many people did, as they witnessed the lightnings and the thunderings there on Mount Sinai, to see only one aspect of fear. You see, if we stop looking at godly fear in our part of our life, then we're going to be like half the people, or a part of the people that were at Mount Sinai, You see, there were two groups of people there. One group were not children of God and they saw the lightning and they saw the thunder and they were afraid being there as everyone was there. But you see, there was another group of people, the children of God. And they not only saw the lightnings and the thunderings, Moses said he was afraid during that time and this is where that Both those fears come together. But they get to see the other side. They get to see God coming down to his people and making his covenant known to them. If you would turn with me to Hebrews 12. We're going to start at verse 18 there. We're going to look at how the author of Hebrews kind of looks at this same experience from a different perspective, from a New Testament perspective, but a perspective of one that is a child of God on the right side of that cross on my diagram. Starting in verse 18, "...for you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire into blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the words should not be spoken to them anymore." for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. See, there's that left side of the cross here, that mortal common fear of a man in front of the awesome God of all creation. But continue on. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. And so I think that the first thing that we lose when we do not exercise godly fear is this view that is talked about here, this view of Mount Zion, this view of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Our focus now is not being driven by godly fear. If we let ourselves lapse, if we get weak in exercising that godly fear, then we start to see the tremblings. We start to see the thunderings. We start to look more at the fear that terrifies us on the other side instead of resting in the godly fear that Christ has brought us into. But you know, that's not all that the Bible says is tied to godly fear. And I can't go through all the things that is tied together because there's just too many. But I want you to ask yourself as I go through another list, just real quickly, And the verses that are attached to these things will be on the notes later on if you want to look at it. But ask yourself if the things that I cover in this next list are not some of the things that you see yourself fearing or you see yourself worrying about. And then recognize that it's godly fear that brings these things to us and drives away that common mortal fear, that anxiety that wants to bog us down and keep him away from the things of God. Just real quickly here. Those that fear God respect their elders. Those that fear God do not oppress others. Those that fear God do not financially weaken their brethren or steal from them. Those that fear God do not rule harshly. Those that fear God follow His commandments. A fear of God leads to a life prolonged. A fear of God leads to service towards him. A fear of God preserves those that fear him. Godly fear gives assurance of life. Godly fear drives us to teach our children the same godly fear. Godly fear drives away idolatry. How about this one from 1 Samuel 12 14 in this time when we're coming into an election there is a tie between the godly fear of a people and the faithfulness of their leaders how much do we look how often do we look at the opposite things from the opposite way we want to see faithfulness from leaders without exercising godly fear that's not what samuel's saying in these verses there is a tie between proper exercise of godly fear and the faithfulness of our leaders how about this one for people that don't like to discuss fear, sin, judgment, anything like that? Godly fear leads to rejoicing. How about that one? That kind of breaks, breaks some barriers there. A godly fear leads us to rejoice our Lord. God's eye is on those that fear Him. God delivers those that fear Him. There is no want in those that fear God. This common one, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How many times do we seek for wisdom in the world, wisdom in so many other places, yet we do not stop at the first place where God tells us to, which is the fear of the Lord. God blesses those that fear Him. The Lord takes pleasure in those that fear Him. The fear of the Lord drives away pride, arrogance, and evil. The fear of the Lord prolongs our days. I already hit that one. The fear of the Lord brings confidence. And I know there's people looking for confidence out there in this world. And it will be well for those that fear God. And like I said, that is just a sampling of what God's Word has to say flows from the proper exercise of godly fear. And yet, in so many of these categories, we don't turn first to look at how we are motivated in our lives. We don't look to see what drives us to do something. Is it the fear of the Lord? Or are we looking at the symptoms? Are we looking at the the after effects, the things we want to happen? We go to them and we don't look at the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, which promises that those things will come in the right time if we exercise godly fear. And so... Where do we go from here? I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. I don't want, just want to lay out a problem and not give a solution. Thankfully, we know we are not saved by our performance because even for those of us who are Christians, I would probably agree in general with William Gurnall, the man I quoted from the, from the beginning. We do fear God too little nowadays. For those who are unsaved, If you remain an enemy to God in bondage to your fear of circumstances and men, in bondage to sin, there is hope for you because Christ died on the cross. He died on the cross to save us from those sins, to appease the wrath of God which was rightfully meant for us who are sinners. And then He eliminated sin, death, and the bondage of fear to both. And that's the promise of God's Word to you today if you're not a child of God. But how about for us that already call ourselves children of God? What do we do? He is our advocate. He is our renewer. And we are promised wisdom in all of these matters and more if we would only fear God. And so I believe today... We must trust in God, in His Word, and in His promises. Take a look at your life as an individual and as a family. Contemplate godly fear for a little while. Take a look. If anything in your life is motivated by this fear of God, not a fear that scares us and terrifies us, but a fear that we bend the knee humbling ourselves before Him and are motivated to action by that fear. So we trust God. We must think in our minds. We must act in the things that we take from the inside of ourselves. We act in a fear of God, but knowing that always we must humble ourselves in His presence in all things. Heavenly Father, I just thank You today for this opportunity when we can come to Your Word. Lord, we we are not standing in front of Mount Sinai right now with thunderings and lightnings and trumpets sounding long that drives us to a place where we tremble and quake in front of You. But just because we don't stand in front of that mountain right now doesn't mean that we do not stand in front of that same God each and every day. And Lord, we know that You've called us to You. And one of the things You've called us for and one of the things that You've blessed us with is the opportunity to bend our knee towards You in godly fear knowing that you will work all things together for good for those that love you and are called according to your purpose. So Lord, I just pray for your people today that we would humble ourselves and bow our knee towards you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.